Well, I don't know if you've, I don't know if you've ever been caught in a really big storm. Uh, three Mexican fishermen managed to survive for nine months on the open ocean before they were rescued by a Taiwanese fishing vessel in early August of 2006. Uh, their unimaginably long journey began in October 2005 when they set sail from the port of San Blas on a shark fishing expedition. Uh, very soon after they sailed out, they were caught in a huge storm which disabled their vessel. And by the time they regained control, they had run out of fuel. They began a nine-month ordeal, battling storms and currents, bad weather, surviving just on rainwater and raw fish. The fishermen were eventually found five and a half thousand miles from their home with nothing much on their boat except for a Bible which they carried with them. When they were interviewed, the fishermen said they believed it was God who had kept them safe. And today, apparently, they are alive and well and telling their stories back home in Mexico. Now, the truth is, you don't have to go on a little boat to find yourself in a storm. You don't even have to go outside. Because as we've seen over the last couple of years, life is full of storms. Whether they're global pandemics or tragedies that hit us like when we least expect it. Whether they're sickness or family breakdown, financial crisis, career setbacks, loss of loved ones. Sometimes they come quickly and go quickly. Sometimes they feel like they last for years. And being able to stand, weather, survive, and even thrive in life's storms seems to me to be one of the biggest challenges we ever faced as human beings. If you talk to a sailor, they will tell you, though, that one item is needed to survive a storm. If your boat does not have an anchor in a storm, you are going to be in trouble. An anchor that stops you being tossed around by the waves and the conditions all around you. An anchor that stops you being cast out to sea like the Mexican fishermen. And an anchor that stops you running aground on the rocky, dangerous beaches. Last week, we we talked about a vision for vintage, and today I want to talk to you in in that vision of of the idea of having an anchor in your life. Last week, we we gave this little phrase, which is like the the caveat, it's like the, the introduction statement to the vision for vintage church, and it's this, you'll see on the screen, to see God's kingdom come to our communities through making disciples who live as whole life followers of Jesus. And that was what we came up with as a leadership. It's stolen from Matthew 28. But we wanted to unpack that and give it some flesh. And so over the next weeks, we're going to go through seven different statements is what we really mean when we we say that. And the seven statements, just to give them to you for the first time, don't need to remember them all today. But maybe there could be special prizes if you can remember them. Because we teach the Bible and allow it to transform our lives. Number two, the ministry of the Holy Spirit works visibly in our community as people use their spiritual gifts and we see signs and wonders occur. Number three, we grow in intimacy with God through charismatic worship and prayer. Number four, we grow a diverse community of all ages who share deeply with one another in worship, small groups, and ministries. Number five, we grow as we serve God through acts of love and care, ministering to the lost, the lonely, and the least. Number six, we create welcoming spaces for people to explore faith. We equip our church to build redemptive relationships, and we see people regularly come to faith in Jesus. And then finally, we equip leaders to plant new churches and advance the kingdom of God. 
I read that back over the summer. I thought, that's the, that's the exact thing I want to give my life to. And that's what we're all about here at Vintage Church. But we're not going to do them all today. We're just going to take the first one. So let me ask you a question. You can shout out if you're feeling brave, if you can shout over the noise of the fans. How do you know anything? Or how do you know what you know about God? It's not a trick question. Any offerings? Oh, you have to be louder than that. Bible, good start. Anything else? Creation, I think that's what you said. If it's not, we're going with it anyway. Anything else? The Holy Spirit, thank you. Other people, cool, yeah. Any more? Oh, sorry, something came from over there. Your gut, okay, just who you're made to be, okay. Great. There's, there's lots of different ways, aren't there, that we, we have something of an inkling of who God is. But I'm extremely glad that the plant who I gave the first answer to, not really, gave us, gave us the answer of God's word to us. And this is our first statement for the, the next seven weeks. We grow to understand the fullness of God's grace and truth as we teach the Bible and allow it to transform our lives. If you want to be able to weather the storms of 2022 and 2023 and 2024, if you want to be able to stand firm, if you don't want to get run aground, if you don't want to be shipwrecked, if you don't want to be swept out to sea, then what you need in the heart of your life is the Bible, God's very word to you. Sometimes at Vintage, we talk about ourselves as a word and spirit at church. So what is this? How do we get into it? And if you're a biblical scholar, this will be nothing but recap. But if you are new to this, if you are trying to figure this out, if you want to get this into the heart of your life, then hopefully this morning will be super helpful to you. So um, obviously 1,500 years of history, 66 books, 1,189 chapters. You've all read every single word and memorized it because I know you. It's a joke. Um, It is by far the best selling book in history. Even today in the United States, 50,000 of these are printed every single day. Six out of 10 adults in the US profess that this book has transformed their lives. And over the course of history, people have lost their lives. They have been put in jail. They've been subject to persecution by trying to distribute Bibles. 600 years ago, it was illegal to have an English translation of the Bible in most of the uh, developed world. Reformers like William Tyndale and John Wycliffe and a guy called Thomas Cramer, they died trying to make an English translation of the Bible and distributing it. As little as 60 years ago, people like Brother Andrew, never heard that, I read his book, incredible story, about taking the Bible from Holland into Eastern Europe in the trunks of their cars in order that those in communist states could read the good news of Jesus. As little as 30 years ago, people smuggled Bibles across the border from Hong Kong into China. And even today, Bibles are put on little USB sticks and floated on balloons into North Korea. Why? Because the Bible changes lives. The Bible is powerful. The Bible is incredible. I found it really interesting that, that even though we sort of live in a time now when people have this, all sorts of things they say about, oh, the Bible is, you know, it has a bad view of women and it's got a limited view of sex and it's used as a political weapon and lots of those kind of statements fly around. It's interesting that even in the pandemic, I've got a little thing to show you, um, they found out that 
36 million people, if I can have the, the chart up on the screen, 36 million people, if you can see that, who before the pandemic had no interaction with the Bible, they were biblically disengaged, started to re-engage with the Bible again. The Bible does something. In my life, the Bible has brought me meaning. It's brought me hope. It's brought me purpose. It's brought me structure. And ultimately, why? Because it tells me about a God who is more loving, more kind, more gracious, more beautiful, more good and holy than I am. So let's get our reading for this morning. If we're talking about the Bible, we better read the Bible. So Ali's going to read for us, if you've got it, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 10 to 17. 2 Timothy 3, 10 to 17. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that through the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Thanks, Sally. So the Apostle Paul is near the end of his life. He's in jail. He's writing to his young protege, his apprentice, this guy called Timothy, who's a local church leader. And he says to Timothy, hey, if you, if you want to thrive, if you want to be a great leader, this is what you need to know. Scripture, the Bible, is incredibly important. But what, what is the Bible, really, at its heart? Well, verse 15, we, we read this. You have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, Paul writes, is God-breathed. The Bible is, is God-breathed. But what, is, like, what, what does that mean? When he says that in verse 16, because some people say, oh, well, what that really means is, right, the Bible is like God sat down with some people and he dictated it to them. When I was, um, I was 10 years old, my best friend was a guy called Tom, and Tom lived at number two, and I lived at number eight. He lived at the bottom of the hill. I lived at the top. It wasn't a very big hill, but it felt that way when we were small. And my friend Tom, he didn't say very much. Um, but every day after school, he would be brave enough to phone up the landline at my house. And we didn't have mobile phones. We, we did have a cordless phone, you know, one of those ones which was like a huge aerial, like a radio that you, you pulled out, felt about like five feet long, and we thought we were super cool. And he'd phone up, and my parents would ans answer, and every day he would just say the same thing. He would just say this, he's been there. And he didn't, he didn't have any other words. And my parents would go, hey, Ben, your friend Tom's on the phone. Can you pick up the phone? So I pick up the phone. I'm like, hey, Tom, how are you doing? And every day, same thing. Want to come play at my house? Every day. And every day I said yes. Now, Tom was great, and I really liked Tom. But I, I really also liked the fact that Tom had an Atari ST. There's a picture of one here. Anyone, anyone ever have anything like this? You guys, are, like, you guys are not as cool as you look. 
No, it's because one of these changed hands for $4,000 on eBay last week. Incredible. Like, it could load any game available on the market in less than 10 minutes. It's astonishing. Had those joysticks which had absolutely no feel whatsoever. They just clicked a lot and used to beat them up when you're playing like the Olympics or something like that. And we would play Tom and I for like hours and hours and hours on these things until basically Tom's dad eventually came home and, and like we were told we had to stop for tea. And, and about five o'clock, you know, Tom's dad, we'd have dinner and then, and then we'd go back to playing on the, on, on the console. And, and what happened is that Tom's dad would go out in the backyard. Now, Tom's dad worked for an insurance company. His uh, job was to rule in big insurance cases. And every night, he would pace up and down his backyard. With, in one hand, he'd have a cigarette, and in the other hand, he'd have like one of those little dict phone cassette recorder things. Remember those back in the day? And, and, and what he would do is he would, he would rule in insurance cases by pacing up the backyard. It'd be like this. In the case of Mr. Smith versus Mrs. Jones, stop. We find the defendant to be, stop, stop. And it would just go on and on and on for hours. Now, I assume that what was really happening was that, that he was going to take those little cassettes and the next morning he went back to his office and he, he gave them to his secretary or his PA and his PA like typed them up into letters and then they went out. It was rulings. Like he dictated it, someone else wrote it. Now, sometimes when we talk about the Bible, that's sort of the idea, right? It's like, okay, yeah, God literally sat down with Moses, or he literally sat down with David, or he literally sat down with Paul, and he said, right, dude, grab a pen, I'm going to tell you some things. And of course, to the sense that that tells us that the Bible matters because it's God's word, that's super helpful, isn't it? But it also feels like it misses something a little bit, doesn't it? Because the people matter who wrote the Bible, the Bible is full of emotion. It's full of humanity. There's even four different accounts of the life of Jesus. And if you read every single one of them, they're all just slightly different. Every one of them looks at Jesus from a different angle and notices different things. And even the order's slightly different. Why would you do that if you were literally going to dump some stuff onto a page of paper? So it doesn't feel enough to say that God literally dictated it into people's lives. So other people say, oh, that's, you know, that's not what it means. Right? The Bible is not like, dictated, it's inspired. And what they you know, mean by that is, oh, yeah, you know, the Holy Spirit was working through their lives and they wrote some really beautiful things. Maybe like when we, we see a great piece of art, like we did a few weeks ago, or we, we say of our worship leaders, even Tom, no, especially Tom, you know, that, was, that was inspired. Like what you did was more than you could have done on your own. The Holy Spirit was doing something in you. Like he, he built something that was more than you could have done on your own. That's an inspired thing. Now, of course, to the extent that like that helps us to understand that the Bible is beautiful and human in its construct, that's great. But then it kind of says, well, the Bible's just like another piece of music. It's another piece of art. It's no different. And of course, we know that the Bible is so much more than that. So what, what is the Bible? How does it work? Well, we get the hint there, verse 16, that it is God breathed to us. It's the same idea you see in Genesis 2 when, when God breathed life into Adam. And in John 20, when God breathed the Holy Spirit into those first people. So the Bible is God's living word to you. It is to bring life to you. 
It is to bring transformation in you. It stands above and beyond any other creation, any other book, any other bit of media, any other bit of art. Because it is God's life that comes through it into your very being. And because it's alive, when we read it, we don't just go, oh, that was nice. You know, oh, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you. And we go, oh, that was nice for them. No, we say, thank you, Lord. Because when you said that then, you say that to me now. When we hear that God is a good father, we don't just say, hey, thanks, God, you were a good father. We say that is true for us today because God is speaking to you on every page of the Bible. But the Bible is, is also, you know, specifically, also the story of Jesus. When, when Paul says, he says, the, uh, the scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, if you think about it, that's quite an interesting statement, right? Because Paul is speaking in the, about the Old Testament scriptures, the Jewish scriptures. I mean, the New Testament of the Bible hasn't been written yet. He's writing it as he speaks. So when he says that the whole of the Old Testament is about Jesus Christ, that's quite a strange thing to say. Except that he's right, of course. Because if you were to open your Bible this morning and you would turn to Genesis chapter 1, even though you would not find the word Jesus there, what you would do is you would find all about God's love, about God's creation, and you would find about the problem of sin and brokenness and why one day someone would have to fix that. If you turn into Exodus and you think about the promised land and the Jewish people, you read again about an incredible God, but you also read about what went wrong and why it's not quite as God intended it to be. If you read the Psalms, you read about the beauty of God. You read about the, the rescuing God. If you read about the prophets, you see this foreshadowing, this prophecy into the future that, are, that someone will come and make this right, restore God's people as they were meant to be in the original creation. Like every page of the Bible is a story of Jesus. It's a little bit like a, a Where's Waldo I don't know if you, anyone to these? I don't know how big they were here, yeah. In the rest of the world, these are called Where's Wally? No idea what's wrong with the word Wally, but they're called Where's Waldo here? The whole Bible is about trying to find Jesus in its pages. As Dr. Charles Stanley says, the Bible is the written record of God's unfolding revelation of himself through the spoken word in nature and through the coming of his son, Jesus Christ. The Bible is all about Jesus. But, but like, what does it do? You know, why, why read it? Because what's it actually going to do for you? Well, verse 16 again, all scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Notice that word at the end, the word righteousness. Kathy Dedo says, righteousness is having all things set right. When there's righteousness in the world, then all things will be in right relationship with one another and will be living and acting according to their created purpose. To desire righteousness in ourselves is to desire that we are living in line with who we were created to be and not in rebellion to it. The Bible is not just an anchor to your life, it's the very compass that you have to navigate with. On Thursday night, the, um, the young adults invited Laura and I to go and do an evening on, on sex and relationships and singleness and marriage. And I was like, okay, we can do that. 
but how do we say anything meaningful in like an hour and a half about that? Probably the most complicated time in history to try and navigate that as a young person. About all the competing things that the world wants to tell us about those topics. Like, how can we do that? And I realized that, like, well, the main thing I can say is this. Guys, when you are bamboozled, when you are shouted at, when you are told contradictory things, this is the only place you are going to get the truth. This is the only place which is going to be firm and secure enough to not mean you're going to get swept away in whatever the latest trend is or whatever the latest app is or whatever the latest thing is going around culture. We need scripture to be our anchor and our compass As McAfee says, the Bible paints a picture of a spiritual life that's mediated, where you're not left to your own devices. You're not on the journey alone. God intervenes in your journey and offers a relationship to you. You grow spiritually and experience spirituality through that relationship with God. The relationship is both the journey, but it's also the destination. When the storms come along, it's the Bible which gives us what is true. But they also, there's that word rebuking and correcting. Um, and let's be honest, that's not nice. <laughs> it's, not, it's not words any of us really like to hear on any given week. And sometimes people look at that and they go, oh, you know, it's, it's like that sort of idea of telling the world what's wrong. The, the first year Laura and I were um, in LA, we went to the Rose Parade and we stood on Colorado we waited for all the floats to come past. But before they came up, there was all these other people who came up the middle of the, the route first. And one of the guys was this guy who was dressed in a Bible, and he was like, it was like nine-foot-tall Bible, bright yellow. I thought, well, that's pretty cool. Cool until I saw his friend who had a massive megaphone in his hand. And he walked right the way up the side of Colorado, like three foot from every single person, and he shouted in their faces, You're going to hell! You're going to burn. <laughs> oh no. Return. Repent. <laughs> That's not what Paul means. Right? That's not what Paul means. This is not a tool where we judge the world for its sins and its brokenness, particularly people who've never even read this and know nothing about it. This is about a compass for us. This is about how we outwork that thing we said last week when we're like, we're going to follow Jesus. And so Jesus, we're all about you and we'll go anywhere you want us to go. And so we really want you to guide us. And Jesus says, sure, here you go. This is to keep you on track. This is to keep you in line. This is to stop you veering off into strange things. But there's an outcome of it too. And the outcome, Paul says, is that all of that prepares us to do good to do good. It's not just to get more head knowledge. It's not just to be more pious or more holy. It's supposed to change the way that we live so that the servants of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You know, I love that even though church attendance has dropped in the US you know, like a lot over, over you know, the last 50 years, something like that, I love that even today still, Churches in the U.S. are still the biggest source of volunteering and care for communities. I love that in the U.S. the churches are still the most generous and biggest givers in society. I love that in the middle of the pandemic, even when we were all going through massive mental health challenges, the secular group Gallup did a study to find out what was one thing that would actually bring positive mental health in the pandemic. And they tried everything. And they found one thing. 
people who worshipped with other believers in a church and read their Bibles. That's what they found. The Bible not only talks of good, but it brings good to the world around it. And I love that because even if you meet somebody who doesn't know Jesus, if you meet somebody who doesn't even agree with the concept of Jesus, there's supposed to be something about the quality of our lives that points to Jesus as we respond to Scripture. Okay, so how do you, how do you, how do you deal with Scripture? How do you, how do you actually wrestle it? Because you're probably going, well, that's fine, Ben, but when I read my Bible, I have some verses that I find difficult, and I find it hard to read, and I don't really know what to do, and... So what do I do? So here's here's four things really fast that I want you to go away with from this morning. The first is, um, understand what it is that you're looking at and reading. Um, If I put in front of you uh, The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe, anyone ever read that poem? Maybe in school. Beautiful bit of poetry. And I put the instruction manual for your microwave next to it and said, go read. You might come back, because you've clearly never read either of those things, you might come back and say, oh, you have to read those a little bit differently. And the same is absolutely true with, with the Bible. You know, the Bible's not one thing, it's lots of different things all joined together. Some of it is, is narrative. It's, it's history. They went there, they did that, God did that, that's what happened next. But some of it's poetry, and I've never written any poetry. If I did, it would be absolutely terrible, I'm sure. But some of you may have written poetry. If you have, you know that poetry is not concerned with like chronological order and trying to make a factual point. It's about emotion and symbolism and beauty. Some of it's letters. Like, hey, like this one we're just reading today. Hey, something's gone wrong in your context. Something you need to sort out. This is what you should do to follow Jesus. Some of it's eyewitness accounts, like the Gospels. Hey, look, there's Jesus. This is what he did. Some of it's prophetic. And again, prophetic writings aren't necessarily supposed to tell you about order and numbers and dates necessarily. They're to tell you about the big story, about the huge big picture of what God is doing and what he's going to do in the future. And some of it's wisdom. It's to literally tell you how to live well in every day. And which of those you're reading matters because you read it a little bit differently and that's okay. The second thing is you need to read contextually and systematically, those are big words I stole from Fuller. But they, they, they mean you, you kind of have to read the big, the big bit. You can't, you can't just read like, you know, one thing. Like a couple of weeks ago, I told you that you can, you know, find out that Santa Claus is real if you read the Bible. And you all went home and read it to your children and said, look, Santa Claus is real. Um, you can read a lot of things in the Bible if you read it wrong. I don't know what your life verses are. I mean, we've all got, you know, a lot of us have we our, our favorite verses which are kind of the verses which make us feel better and they don't challenge us too much, you know, those ones. I bet, does anyone have this one as their, their life verse? A feast, Ecclesiastes 10, 19. A feast is made for laughter, wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. It's not bad, right? I mean, you could just leave the rest of the Bible and go with that one if you want to. I don't recommend it. This is my least favorite verse in the Bible, though. Uh, 2 Kings 2, 23. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel, and as he was walking along the road, some boys came out from the town and jeered at him, get out of here, Baldy. They said, get out of here, Baldy. It's just, it's just not kind, is it? It's, it's not nice. It shouldn't be there. 
If you take one verse of the Bible, you can get to a lot of different places. And so the invitation is to take a bigger sweep when you read scripture. One of my favorite places in Pasadena is Huntington Gardens. Sometimes when guests come to stay with us, we're like, we're going to take you to Huntington Gardens because it's, it's going to be amazing. But imagine you took a friend into Huntington Gardens and you blindfolded them and you took them right the way down the hill to the bottom to the English Meadows. Remember the English Meadows? Oh, English Meadows. And you, and you said, just kneel down here. And you took off their blindfold and you said, hey, tell me everything that you can tell me about Mr. Huntington and his design for the gardens. Now, I imagine they would probably come back and go, oh, Mr. Huntington, he loves the color green. Right? He's all about green. Short plants, nice, lush, flat surface. That's what Mr. Huntington designed for the Huntington Gardens. And you'd go, well, possibly some truth there, but not all the whole picture. Instead, you could say, well, why don't I take 10 plants from around Huntington Gardens? Now tell me about Mr. Huntington. And you get a better picture. But really, if you want to know everything that Mr. Huntington had in mind for the gardens, you need to spend time. You need to walk the whole gardens. You need to take time to savor it, to smell it, to allow it into your eyes and you hear the sounds of it. You need to enjoy the beauty of it. And it's not going to happen in one moment, in one part. It's going to take quite a while to do that. And the same is true with the Bible. But we can get very unstuck if you just go for your favorite one or your favorite 10 verses. We're invited to go for the whole thing. Now, you might go, that's fine, but I don't really like reading 1,400 pages of an evening. It's a little bit beyond my, my, my interest level. So here's just some really quick tools, and you can photograph these on the screen if you want to, or you can jot them down if, if they help you any. Some things to help you read the Bible. Okay, number one, a book, and it's cheap. Okay, how to read the Bible, book by book, Gordon Fee proper classic book, um, available on Amazon for very, not very much money. If I lost you because it was a book, stick with me. Okay. Number two, Lectio 365, um, the top, top left corner there. Um, free app, some friends of ours uh, from around the world, every day they do an audio devotion on a piece of scripture. They do it in the morning and they do it at night. It's a prayer scripture thing. It's absolutely brilliant. A load of you are already using it. Uh, Lecture 365. Um, If I can persuade you to think about the whole Bible, then Bible in a year. In in the olden days, you had to read chapters after chapters. Now you can listen to chapters after chapters on podcasts. There are loads of them. You can have it in any accent that you feel like. Lots of different accents available to you. Um, Do the Bible in the year. And then finally, if I've completely lost you because I'm still talking about things that are like reading or, or listening, cartoons. Okay, cartoons. The Bible Project is amazing. A guy called Tim Mackey, um, he did this incredible thing, which is all about uh, taking every book of the Bible and unpacking it like, in incredibly creative and beautiful ways. So the Bible Project, YouTube it, it's free. So if you don't know what else to do, do those things. Okay, just two more to go. Okay, number three. Think about yourself when you read the Bible. Not too much but recognize that you play a part in the story too. I told this a few weeks ago, um, so I'm just repeating myself, but whenever you put on a pair of sunglasses, whenever you put on a pair of uh, anything like that, it slightly changes the vision that you have. It changes the perspective that you have. It changes the colors that you see. 
And the same is true with scripture. Like I'm 39 years old. Um, I have a particular way of experiencing the world because I grew up in certain countries. My parents taught me certain things. I went to certain kinds of churches. It's different from you. You guys went to different churches from me. You, didn't, you did different experiences. When I read the Bible, I read it differently to maybe a farmer in Bangladesh might read the Bible. Now, we could get very confused and say, well, one of us is right and one of us is wrong and you need to sort yourself out and agree with me. Or we can say, if you love God and you're full of the Holy Spirit and you're doing the work of theology and I'm doing the work of theology, maybe together we've got some things that we can teach each other because we see it slightly from different perspectives. So thirdly, remember you know, yourself. And then fourthly, this is maybe the one I just want to leave you with before you go. Um, do it from a prayer of prayer and worship. Do it from a place of prayer and worship. You may have noticed this if you've been around churches for a while. You know, we don't come to church on Sunday and say, grab a, grab a donut, grab a coffee, and sit down and we're just going to unpack the Bible for an hour together. We don't. When we come to church, there's a reason that we sing. There's a reason that we pray. There's a reason that we stand in silence and awe in the presence of God because we recognize that if this is God's living word to us, we've got to get ourselves in the right place to be able to hear God speaking into our lives. Some people get really unstuck on scripture because they just think it's like basically academic black and white text and they forget that it's alive and well and God is waiting to speak to people through it. And that's why I want to say in your life, whether you're the person who does like a few minutes in the morning or you do it in the evening or I don't know, you do it wherever you do it, do it within the context of prayer and worship. Do it within the place of seeking out the presence of God. Do it within a place where you're hungry to hear what the Lord would say to you. Because often that's what turns it from being dry and difficult to something that is, is really beautiful. But I, we wanted to start as a church with that at the very top of our list. We're going to talk about worship. We're going to talk about prayer. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about mission and community over the weeks that have come. But we wanted to recognize that as a church, there is nowhere to go on any topic in life that the Bible does not give us to go. The Bible is absolutely, absolutely essential to live well in 2022. And the more polarized the world gets, the more truth is debated, the more it feels confusing to live, the more we've got to be people who can stand firm, stand fast, to read scripture really well and apply it to our lives so that we would grow to understand the fullness of God's grace and truth as we teach the Bible and allow it to transform um, our lives. So let's pray and then we're going to come to communion and our kids are going to rejoin us. If you've got kids in the nursery, um, please do go and uh, get them right now so that they can join in uh, with communion.